Well, Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 4, as we continue our study uh, of this marvelous uh, and somewhat enigmatic uh, book and uh, figure in redemptive history. Uh, Salvation belongs to the Lord, uh, and this evening's message is called, Where's the Love? Uh, Where's the Love? And uh, we are going to see a, a return to the recalcitrance of Uh, this prophet in chapter 4, and also along with uh, Jonah chapter uh, 4 and verses 1 through 5, I want us to take a look uh, at the great uh, commission in Matthew 28. Please stand for the reading of God's word, first in Jonah chapter 4, and then in Matthew uh, 28. Please hear the word of God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 28. And uh, beginning in... Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our loving Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, illumine our hearts and our minds, that we would hear your word, that we would receive it, that we would believe it, and that we would respond to it, particularly, Lord, as it concerns resting in Christ alone for our salvation and being your living witnesses in this world and in the sphere in which you have placed us and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. We begin in Matthew uh, 28, because there we have the commission from our Lord Jesus Christ. If you uh, think about famous characters in, in history or someone perhaps that you consider a hero, and you hear sort of their final words, their departing words before they either die or, or go away or right off into the sunset, you say, well, those are important words for us to remember. Well, interestingly, the very thing that Christ commands his church to do, the mandate that he gives God's people, is the one thing that's often on uh, the bottom of the to-do list every day for us. It's interesting. Uh, some of the most important words that Christ utters prior to ascending into heaven about 
being a part of this mission to go forth into all the world and make disciples becomes that which is on the back burner, that which is in uh, the back part of the mind and not on the front end. When we see people around us who are unbelievers, when we see neighbors, when we see coworkers, when we have family members, uh, we are not, first of all, thinking about uh, whether or not we would have an opportunity one day to share the gospel with them or to be a witness to them in some way, to invite them to church. What is often on our minds are other things, other things that are a more worldly way uh, of thinking. And so when we look at the Great Commission, some would look at the Great Commission and interpret it in this way. Well, pastor, we'll pray for you. Go ahead and carry out the Great Commission. Uh, Because I wasn't called to baptize anyone, and I have a full-time job, and so I clearly am not going to teach all that Christ commanded. That sounds like the work of a pastor. And guess what? You're right. That is the work of the pastor, to, uh, uh, to make disciples, Uh, and to uh, uh, administer the means of grace, the the preaching of the word, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And of course, that teaching all that Christ commanded is is uh, uh, kind of a summarized form of an expository teaching or preaching ministry. That is the work of the pastor. That's the work of the the missionary, as it were, that's going to plant churches. Today, we were uh, speaking with um, the, our missionary in Honduras, Aaron Halbert. Uh, we had about 30 minutes with him with our uh, forming summer missions team for next summer. And, uh, you know, it was just really encouraging to, to hear from him and, and all that he's doing there in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. But this, some would have this idea that it's really just up to the ordained ministers to do it. And The primary application of the Great Commission is indeed for the ordained leadership. It is. And so let there be no confusion about that. Uh, Of course, everybody's not called to baptize and to teach all that Christ commanded. That's the pastoral ministry, and so the ordained are set apart to do that. However, there are secondary applications that very much apply to the whole church and to individual Christians. In fact, we are called in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light. And so wherever God has plopped you down in his sovereignty, uh, there you are called to uh, be salt and light, to preserve that which is good and to uh, be light in the darkness, to bring light and truth and wisdom to wherever you are. And that's where God has, wherever he's placed you, the friends and the environment he's placed you in, that's where you are called to be salt and light. The Bible also says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us. And so 1 Peter 3.15, are we doing that? Are we prepared to do that? Are we in love responding to opportunities we have to share the gospel, to be salt and light? Well, here's the good news. As we do this, as we do this, as I do this, and uh, in, in, in what God's called me to, as you do it, and what God's called you to in your various vocations and being salt and light and, and, and giving those gospel witnesses and inviting people to church and, and, and being a good neighbor and all these things within your context, as we do this, Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, a lot of times we start with the mandate. We say, what's the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples. No, the Great Commission starts with All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's good news, isn't it? Uh, Before I came to plant Christ Church, when I studied 
the Great Commission, I thought, you know, that's the most comforting thing in the world, that you go to start something new, and I'm not going by myself. God doesn't say, well, I got you all ready now, now go and do it. No, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, uh, uh, has been given to me, Christ says. And then later, the, the, the Great Commission is bookended with another promise, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so two promises bookend the command to go and to make disciples. The promise that Christ has all authority and the promise that Christ is with us. And then we go about that, that witness, that mission, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ possesses all authority. And so when we pray, we pray with confidence. When we go, we go with courage and confidence, not in ourselves, but in, in Christ. Uh, and so the Great Commission is so important for us to understand and embrace as we think about mission in the book of Jonah. In fact, mission is everywhere. It's all over the Bible, and we tend to not give it the attention that we should. You'll see in the call to worship this evening, O oh, sing a new song to the Lord. This is Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord all the year. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the what? The nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. In the New Testament, anytime the word Gentile is used in context of going forth in the mission, that Greek word is the word ethnoi. It, it, it means nation or peoples. It's everybody but the Jews. And so the, the, the Jews whom, who were the cradle of, of, of the Messiah... Um, and where God would reveal himself through his word and through um, uh, all of the sacrifices and the promises and the types and the shadows, that would happen within Israel. But salvation was never to just stay in Israel. It was to go out to the nations, to the ethnoi. And that is what we are about as a church. It must be uh, what we are about more and more as, as a church. Uh, one good way to cultivate a heart for mission is to do things like short-term summer missions, of course. But one uh, way to do it is to read missionary biographies. Uh, we don't find ourselves reading missionary biographies today as we did in the past. Uh, I'll ask you, when's the last time you read a missionary biography? Uh, when's the last time you were challenged by a Christian who was willing to risk all for the sake of Christ? Uh, it's important that we're reading these things and being challenged by these things and being uncomfortable with uh, our own comfort. Um, we need to be challenged in these things as Christians. And I've mentioned John G. Payton uh, in the past. He was a famous 19th century Scottish missionary. He grew up in Glasgow uh, in, a, in a wonderful, godly, Reformed and Presbyterian home. He was catechized. His father was very godly and uh, was committed to a godly home. And... Uh, John G. Payton, for, since his uh, young teenage years, wanted to go to the New Hebrides to do a uh, foreign mission. He wanted to reach these, these island peoples uh, with the gospel. These, these islands, are, it's a grouping of 80 small islands just east of Australia. And as I've mentioned previously, uh, after a very successful ministry in Glasgow, in December of 1857, Payton was licensed to preach by his presbytery. And for the next several months, he visited churches and raised support. He was actually encouraged many times not to go because of how dangerous it would be. I think I told you the story a few weeks ago. A man in his latter years rose up and said, 
Mr. Peyton, you should not go to the New Hebrides. You might be eaten by the cannibals. And he said uh, very quickly, well, dear sir, you are a man of older years, and soon you will die, and you will be buried and be eaten by the worms. If I go to the New Hebrides, and I'm killed and eaten by cannibals, well, you'll be eaten by worms, I'll be eaten by cannibals, and on the day of the resurrection, we will both rise up in glory. But this is the, the, the heart of faith. Everybody's not called to go into these kinds of situations. But are we willing are we willing to be used of God in any way he would call us to serve? Does this, does this even enter our minds anymore that God may want to use us in these particular ways? Well, uh, it was in the spring of 1858, uh, not long before his 34th birthday, that John Payton with his young wife uh, were ready to embark on their journey to the South Pacific. 34 years old, successful ministry in Glasgow. Everybody's telling him not to go because he might be eaten by cannibals and also because he had a very successful ministry where he was. Why would you go? Why would you go? Well, one of the most moving scenes in this missionary biography about John G. Payton is the scene of him leaving his father. Some of you who have read about Payton know this scene. It's one of uh, the most um, moving scenes in all missionary uh, biography, knowing the love and the bond between this father and son and this father willing to send his son off to the mission field, knowing quite well that he might not even make it there on the journey because the journey was treacherous on the open seas. And then certainly after he arrived to be around these violent islanders. And so the biographer of John G. Payton writes this. It was hard to leave the happy home, but at length the day of separation arrived. It was about 40 miles to Kilmarnock where he would take a train to Glasgow. The journey to Kilmarnock had to be taken on foot because he could not afford to travel by stagecoach. All his possessions were tied up in a large handkerchief, but he did not think of himself as poverty-stricken, for he had with, with him his Bible and his Lord. His father walked with him the first six miles. The old man's, quote, counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey, end quote, were never forgotten by the son. At length, they both lapsed into silence. The father carried his hat in his hand and his long yellow locks fell over his shoulders while hot tears flowed freely and silent prayers ascended. Having reached the appointed parting place, they clasped hands and the father said with deep emotion, quote, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil, end quote. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, they embraced and parted. Continuing down the road past a curve, John climbed the dike for a last look and saw his father had also climbed the dike, hoping for one more glimpse of his boy. The old patriarch looked in vain, for his eyes were dim, then climbed down and started for home, his head still bared and his heart offering up fervent supplications. Quote, I watched through blinding tears, said the son in his autobiography, till his form faded from my gaze, and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft, 
by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me, end quote. Powerful testimony, not only of John Payton, but of John Payton's father willing to send his son off, son off into the world of mission, into the unknown, as it were. We have to ask ourselves about our own hearts. Is our own focus merely on the success of our children in the, in the eyes of the world? Is that what we put our focus on? Well, I want my child to have this kind of a status and this kind. Now, there, people will be called to all kinds of things. The question I'm asking is, are we willing and are we praying? Are we willing and are we praying in terms of foreign mission? It was time to go for Peyton. And as one biographer explains it, quote, behind them was a homeland of locks and glens. Before them, an island of spears and blood. And he went on with a willing heart, on fire with love for God and full of compassion for the lost. Again, need I even say it, everyone is not called to full-time mission work. But everyone, I believe, must be willing in their heart to say, Lord, here I am. Do with me what you will. If it's here, I'll do it here. If it's somewhere else, I'll do it there. I am yours. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Do we put comfort above the call, the possible call, into foreign mission? There's a ministry I shared about uh, a few weeks ago um, called Radius. Uh, they have um, a campus in Tijuana, Mexico, and there are always about 50 to 60 students that are there, many of them married, and they are preparing to go to the hardest places in the world, to the unreached peoples. Um, uh, currently, I have plans to spend a day there in February to see this work, and it's extraordinary. Just hearing about it brought me to tears. During the graduation, after they prepare for this year, these young people who have grown close together, as you can imagine, and they're all going to different parts of the world, they, they embrace, and uh, they know that for some of them, they'll never see each other again, and some will not live out a long life either. But these are all inspiring stories, are they not? They motivate us. They get us to think about our own lives and to reflect upon what is most important to us. Uh, and we should return to these stories again, again, and, and again. But uh, th there are, it's, it's also a, a massive contrast to what we see in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a book about mission, but is it? Is it? Uh, here in this story, we have uh, been seeing this prophet who is called by the word of the Lord uh, to go to Nineveh and to preach God's word in this city. Nineveh, you remember, the capital of Assyria, are the enemies of Israel. They are the enemies of God's people. And so uh, for uh, anyone, not just Jonah, it would have been um, a challenging and a strange call to be called to go to Nineveh and to proclaim God's word. 
what did Jonah do? Of course, we know that he uh, got on a ship going the opposite uh, di- direction, and uh, as he was heading 2,500 miles in the opposite direction, God uh, brought uh, a storm, and uh, uh, as we have considered in the past, uh, Jonah finally told the sailors, this is my fault, I'm running from the one true God, throw me over, and it'll be okay. And so, uh, throw Jonah over, the sea is calm, there's a kind of propitiation there, uh, where Jonah's thrown in, and the boat continues to go, they think Jonah's dead, and Jonah thinks he's dead until a large fish swallows him up. And inside the fish for three days and three nights, which is typology to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being in the tomb for three days, uh, as we learn later in the Gospels, he has this moment of reflection and crying out to God, and uh, God speaks tenderly to him, and there seems to be this work that goes on in Jonah's life, and I don't think there's any reason to doubt that. Uh, Jonah, as I'll talk about this evening, is what we would call like Samson, a very, very, very weak Christian. He has the seed of faith, but his life doesn't reflect the kind of godliness that we would hope uh, to, to see. And so in this story, and in chapter 4, in the first five verses, we're going to learn some things about the tenderness and the patience of God uh, in dealing with uh, and interacting with this recalcitrant prophet And so in chapter 3, of course, after Jonah is uh, expelled from the fish onto dry land, he goes, uh, after receiving a second call from the Lord, he goes preaching, and what happens? Well, the Lord works in the hearts of the Ninevites, uh, and uh, the Ninevites repent uh, from the king to the lowest peasant. They uh, put on sackcloth, they throw themselves in the dust, and they say, maybe even God will have mercy on us. They make no demands. There are no, there's no qualifications to their repentance. They turn from it, and they say, maybe God will have mercy on us. And, um, and so look at verse 10 with me of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We considered last week uh, that this doesn't mean that God changes his mind. Uh, this is... God speaking to us in an anthropomorphic way to help us to understand uh, a little of, 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 of God, but we don't get the whole picture. We know that God is sovereign, and he's working out his sovereign will, and uh, we must understand that about this text. But then we come to chapter 4. If you had read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and said, okay, so what do you think happens next? What do you think happens next? The last thing I would argue that any of us would think happens next is what actually happens next. If I were to guess, I would say something like, well, Jonah would have gotten on his knees and praised God for this massive revival, giving thanks that God had showered down his mercy on this pagan peoples. And, and now they're, these people are all idolaters, and now they're worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. That's surely what happens next. Nope. It's not at all what happens next. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's response is not one of praise and gratitude. It's one of angry displeasure. He is exceedingly displeased with God's action. Unlike John Payton and his father, who were wanting to reach the savages of the New Hebrides with the gospel, Jonah did not possess a heart for the Ninevites, nor was there much at all of a heart for the nations. The story of Jonah indeed concludes in a very strange and unusual way. Rather than rejoice in this great work of redemption, he gets angry. He, he pouts. He's pouting through his prayer. He's pouting through his prayer, and he tells God, this is exactly why he tried to run. God, I knew you would do this. And Jonah certainly knows something of the covenant faithfulness and mercy of God. It's why he ran in the first place. It's why he ran, because he knows God, and he knows God is a God of mercy. And he just figured God would have mercy on his enemies. Now, before we sit back smug, thinking, I cannot believe Jonah. (laughs) What is wrong with him? We need to remember that there is a a kind of Jonah syndrome, uh, a kind of uh, Jonah-ism that happens in the life of the church, uh, I would argue, in all of our hearts. You see, we too have these seeds of hatred and bitterness in our hearts towards others, not least towards foreign nations, maybe those nations that are political enemies of ours. We see so much coming through the mainstream uh, media and and, and all we are hearing about are the political things, and we forget that um, there may be corrupt leaders who also need the gospel driving a certain kind of philosophy or, 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 or uh, taking war to people. And yet we forget that there's an entire nation there of people that need the gospel. People will often, in our own circles... I'm not saying in this church, but in in conservative Christian circles, they will talk about the Chinese and the Russians as if they are one people who are our enemy. That is not thinking with a biblical and a Christian worldview. We must distinguish between all the political speak and the mission that God has called us to as Christian believers. And that is to love and pray for our enemies who so desperately need the gospel, even as we do this very night. 
we must recognize these seeds of bitterness in our own hearts. It's not just Jonah that has anger and bitterness in his heart towards his political enemies. It's us. We have these seeds. And we must repent of them tonight if we have them. If, uh, now, uh, you may roll your eyes at this. That's fine. I forgive you. Um, but the World Cup is happening right now. The World Cup is happening right now. And you know I'm a bit of a soccer aficionado. I know some of you are as well. God bless you. One thing that happens, whether it's the Olympics or whether it's the World Cup, you know, there's something really good, isn't there, about there being competition between nations and having that competition and seeing, for instance, an Iranian player help up an American player during a game. It's kind of weird that actually is meaningful, but it is. It's meaningful because of all the angry, polarized talk that we get from the mainstream media. And so when you see athletes competing against each other and they're not killing each other, they're helping each other up, they're patting each other on the back, they're congratulating each other after games, that actually helps the world to be reminded of the fact that it's not just all the, the body politic going on. But as Christians, we take it to another level. We have a mission to go forth into all the world and to make disciples. And we must beware of having this Jonah disease, as it were, of having discrimination and anger in our hearts towards nations of people in certain parts of the world. We also need to recognize, like Jonah, that we are often more concerned with our own comforts than we are with the salvation of men and women and boys and girls and nations that are, again, our political enemies, but are not our enemies that we want to reach with the gospel. Our hearts grow hard against the lost oftentimes. Rather than pray for them, we curse them in our hearts. But this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. Peyton went to the New Hebrides, to the cannibals, with the gospel, with a heart for the lost and a desire to glorify God through mission. Jim Elliott, you'll know, from the 1950s, went to the savages in Ecuador, Shell Beach, and of course were killed. But in both instances, praise God, there were massive numbers of conversions, not initially in John G. Payton's ministry, but after four or five years and more ministry, there were massive numbers of conversions. And of course, we know that after Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries that were killed on Shell Beach, Elizabeth Elliott and other missionaries went in later to share the gospel with these same people that killed their husbands. And, um, and the entire village was converted. Um, powerful work of the gospel and powerful work of the gospel in the hearts of Christians who are loving uh, the lost. So let us not curse them in our hearts. Let us pray for them. Let us pray for them. There are many examples like this throughout church history that we should carefully consider. The second thing, really, uh, and the final thing I want us to recognize from this text this evening, this brief 
text, five verses, is God's uh, amazing patience and love. Not just for the Ninevites, but for Jonah. Not just for the Ninevites, but for Jonah. So perhaps you're thinking, man, I really don't have much of a heart for the lost, and I don't find myself having a lot of compassion for the people around me, and I don't really find myself praying for the nations, and we have this missionary of the month that we highlight, and I really don't pray for that person or that family, and I honestly, Pastor, just find myself very cold as it concerns world mission. Well, guess what? There are a lot of people, a lot of Christians that are in that or that somehow wander into that realm. You're not alone. But we don't want to stay there. We don't want to stay there as individuals, families, or as a church. Thankfully, God is patient with us. His love and his patience are amazing, and we see that so powerfully communicated towards Jonah. Think about this. Here is Jonah, this recalcitrant prophet uh, who God swallowed up with a whale and spit him out, and he does this, and he's still complaining. He, he's, he's still groaning and complaining in his prayers towards God, and yet God is patient with him. And again, it's not only Jonah that's like this. We are often like this as well. Jonah and often uh, we ourselves are like the older brother in the prodigal son story in Luke 15. Uh, Rick Phillips comments on this in his commentary on Jonah, that we are sometimes like this prodigal son. We are uh, like the prodigal son in Luke 15. And God is, of course, the generous, loving father who receives his youngest son back after a life of debauchery and wasting all of his inheritance. He comes back, the son does, and says, Father, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I just want to work uh, with the animals. You don't need to embrace me as your son anymore. And the father brings the robes and puts his ring in his finger and says, Son, you are home. I thought you were dead. I love you, my son. Kill the fattened calf. This is the generous heart of God. And we see that. We see that here. God's love is abounding towards the, the, nation, the, the, the city of, of, um, of Nineveh and also towards Jonah, his prophet. God's grace is plentiful, not just towards the sinners that are different to us, but actually to us as well. We notice this patience of God with Jonah. Jonah's playing the fool. He's responding to God like a petulant child. But the spark of God's grace is within him. Jonah possesses faith, and God is not going to abandon him because of that spark of grace, because of that faith. It's a mustard seed. It's small. It's like Samson's faith. Samson's named in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and yet the man is often despicable in his life. It's why we need to be careful to make judgments of people. We also don't want to sort of make absolutions over everybody. We don't know the answer to these things. If we saw Jonah, we would wonder if he was even a Christian, but here's God being patient with him. The same with Samson. It's extraordinary. God's grace is plentiful. It is full, it is rich, it is, it is free. 
The Lord will be patient with Jonah. He'll question him and he'll seek to instruct him even as he does uh, to us. Uh, There's a favorite verse um, that many of us will often uh, quote and uh, and consider. And there's an entire uh, chapter, it's not a large chapter, but uh, in the godly man's picture, drawn with a scripture pencil written by Thomas Watson in the 17th century. Uh, This is an absolutely wonderful book on Christian piety. I would highly recommend it. But uh, you know the, the passage from Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. What does this mean? It means that when we are often walking in the wrong direction, struggling with doubts, living in the way that God is not pleased with, when our faith is small, when our belief is dim, God does not snuff us out. Amen? He do, when, when, when you have a loved one die and you're doubting God, you're wondering if God is even there, guess what? He doesn't snuff you out. He doesn't finally break the reed that's bruised. No, he continues to work. He's patient. He's loving. He instructs us. What a wonderful blessing. And Thomas Watson, in this particular section, said some things I was reading actually this morning uh, in my devotion and decided I would end my sermon tonight with this. Listen to Watson's words. Christ will not quench the smoking flax. Imagine a, a candle or a lantern and the, the, the wick is barely burning and is starting to smoke because it's about to go out. That's oftentimes how our faith will look. Christ will not quench the smoking flax because this little light in the flax may grow bigger. Grace is compared to a grain of mustard seed. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the largest of herbs and becomes a tree. The greatest grace was once little. The oak was once an acorn. The most renowned faith in the world was once in its spiritual infancy. The greatest flame of zeal was once only smoking flax. Grace, like the waters of the sanctuary, rises higher, Ezekiel 47. If then the smallest embryo and seed of holiness has a ripening and growing nature, the Lord will not allow it to be abortive. Christ will not quench the smoking flax, because when he preserves a little light in a great deal of smoke, here the glory of his power shines forth. The trembling soul thinks it will be swallowed up by sin, but God preserves a little quantity of grace in the heart. No, he makes that spark prevail over corruption as the fire from heaven licked up the water in the trench. So God gets himself a glorious name and carries away the trophies of honor. My strength is made perfect in weakness. See the different dealings of God and men. Men for a little smoke will quench a great deal of light. God for a great deal of smoke will not quench a little light. 
It is the manner of the world. If they see a little failure in another to pass by and quench a great deal of worth because of that failure, this is our nature, to aggravate a little fault and diminish a great deal of virtue, to see the infirmities and darken the excellencies of others as we take more notice of the twinkling of a star than the shining of a star. We censure others for their passion, but do not admire them for their piety. Thus, because of a little smoke that we see in others, we quench much light. God does not act like that. For a great deal of smoke, he will not quench a little light. He sees the sincerity and overlooks many infirmities. The least sparks of grace he cherishes and blows them gently with the breath of his spirit till they break forth into a flame. Praise God that he is not like us, so quick to censure so quick to condemn, so quick to make judgments. He does not quench the smoking flax. He does not break the bruised reed. He protects, he cherishes, he nourishes, and he is patient with us. This is the picture that we see, that I want us to see here when it comes to the prophet Jonah. Jonah expressed himself in ways that we often do in our own hearts. But God is patient with us. And of course, the call here is to examine ourselves and to repent of those things that we know are displeasing to the Lord. And again, to cultivate a heart for the lost, a compassion for those who desperately need Christ here in our own community and around the world. God is ascending God. He has sent his son into the world and the Lord is sending us. And so in Christ, we are called to be his living witnesses, to proclaim that glorious gospel of grace, that good news, that though we are full of sin in our hearts, minds, wills, affections, that our whole lives are corrupted by sin, that God sent a savior who would be born of a virgin that we sang about earlier, the angels will sing, and, and this child who would be born of the virgin would, would do that which man since the fall has failed to do, that you and I fail to do every day. And then as a perfect, righteous, spotless lamb, be sacrificed on the cross, bearing your sins and mine, and bearing the wrath of God, which is the penalty that is due us, but Christ took to himself. Our sin nailed to the cross, his righteousness given to us and received by faith. And he died and rose on the third day, conquering sin, hell, and death, and ascended into heaven. But before he did, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go forth into all the world then and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching all that Christ is commanded, and lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And so that is the mission that we do. Primary application to the ordained ministers, secondary application, you're making sure the ordained ministers are doing what they're supposed to do, and you're praying for them and supporting them and encouraging them, and you yourself are being those living witnesses in our community, in your vocation, in your family, in your home, in your neighborhood, as we seek to bring the gospel to the nations. Let us pray.
Our Father, we thank you uh, for